Good morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. We'll be reading from verses uh, 18 through 22. Matthew chapter 21, 18 through 22. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord says, verse 18, Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done with to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things that you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity now to look at this story. Father, a very uh, well-known story. I pray now that uh, your spirit would illumine our minds so that we can see the message of it and be able to apply it into our lives, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes uh, things get marketed as heavy duty. And uh, they, they kind of have this appearance of heavy duty. Uh, so you'll have, for example, I'm just going to use a stove. And you've got the regular stove, you know, white stove with the little plastic knobs. And then you've got the, the heavy duty or the commercial grade stove. Uh, now, the commercial grade kind of looks like something you would find in a restaurant. It's, instead of just the small little plastic uh, knobs, to turn on the gas, it's got these kind of big stainless steel ones, right? And uh, it just looks bulky. And uh, people will pay more money uh, for the commercial heavy-duty looking one. But uh, restaurants don't really go looking for heavy-duty type stoves when they're going to furnish the, the restaurant. Uh, they're looking at BTUs. How much heat can this thing produce? How fast does it want to get water to boil? That's what they're worried about. And so you can put the two stoves, the little white one, you know, with the little black knobs, and, and you can put the, the commercial-grade heavy-duty one that looks, you know, like one from the restaurant, and they have the same BTUs. Uh, but this one will cost X amount of dollars, and this one will cost a lot more than X amount of dollars. And people will pay the extra money, even though it put out the same amount of heat. They'll pay the extra money so that they can have the appearance of heavy-duty commercial. Because somehow, it brings them more satisfaction. I mean, if they've got this stove, people are going to be like, they must not be a very good cook. But if they've got this stove, they must be like one of those chefs that interned all over Europe, and that's why they've got this. So there's somehow value attached to the one that looks commercial, heavy-duty. And then we put another value to... The white one with the little plastic knobs, you know. Uh, we'll pay extra. And it's because, in a certain sense, we 
we worry more about what people think about us when they see, when they look at our stove and they come to certain conclusions about us. We, we worry what conclusions they might come to if they just see a regular old stove with a plastic knob. Here we have this uh, situation, and um, the day before of the text that we just read was Monday, and Jesus had gone into the temple, and he had run out animals, he had run out uh, people selling the animals, he had uh, turned over tables, he had thrown out people who were exchanging funds. He, he did all these actions, and in a certain sense, it seems like those actions contradict Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus said that... Uh, uh, come to him because his yoke is light. He is gentle and humble. H gentle and humble do not seem like they go hand in hand with casting people out of the temple. It, it seems to contradict one from another. So how are we to understand that this Jesus who, I mean, did he forget? I mean, because this was back in chapter 11, now we're at chapter 21. Did he forget in that time period that he had said that he was gentle? Or something else is going on. Well, the people that he threw out were individuals who were taking advantage of individuals who were seeking after God. They wanted a relationship with God. They were trying to uh, uh, obey God by bringing sacrifices, and they were standing in the way be between them and God by selling them these animals, exchanging uh, money for a very expensive uh, exchange rate. So they were in between them and God. Uh, see, God is very humble and gentle for the, uh, towards the sinner, and he invites the sinner. But he is rather antagonistic, rather harsh with those who try to get in the way between the sinner and God. He, he is. He, he's rather uh, harsh on them. One thing that we see in the events that had just happened on Monday was that uh, in a certain sense, those religious leaders, they, they somehow lost track that the temple was not theirs. They, they forgot that the temple was God's house. It, it was God's. It wasn't theirs. And somehow along the way, they kind of started feeling like it was theirs, and, and they were selling animals as if they were in their backyard, you know, at, at their home selling animals. In a way, they kind of just felt like it was theirs. And then when there was children running around screaming, Hosanna to the son of David, they didn't like that. It's like they forgot that they were just stewards. God had them just there for a season, and they forgot. Sometimes we can fall into that trap. We can start saying mine to everything we touch, every ministry, every activity we do. This is mine. And we forget that we're here just for a season. I'm here for just a season. Some might wish it was a shorter season. I don't know. But I'm here just for a season. It's not my church. It's Christ's church. It's none of our church. It's Christ's church. And he's, he's working through us. And we're stewards. And we have to give an account one day. Now what we're going to be looking at today is that faith in God produces fruit in your life and great works for God's purpose. That, that's the idea that we're going to be seeing here. Faith in God produces fruit in your life and great works for God's purpose. Uh, let me just point out from the beginning here that uh, there is a natural division that happens between 18 and 19 and then 20 through 22. It, the, the text just kind of divides very naturally there. And uh, <clears throat> my 
Calvinistic friends, who I love and appreciate, they, they tend to focus on verses 18 and 19. They, they'll go there. That's, that's, they love those verses. Uh, my Arminian friends, who I love and appreciate, they, uh, they love 20 through 22. And they'll just jump into 20 and 22. They'll do sermons about uh, 20 through 22. <clears throat> Uh, but really, you, you can't explain the shock that the disciples have in, in verse 20 unless you understand what happened in 18 and 20. So it's a literary unit. It's one pericope. It, it's together. You can't separate it. You have to treat it together. So I, I'm just warning you right ahead, because if you tend to lean one way or the other, uh, we're going to have to plow it together, all the way straight through, and get an interpretation from the whole section, all right? So here we go. The first thing that we should note is that faithlessness leads to death. Faithlessness leads to death, and we see that in verses 18 through 19. Uh, Jesus says there uh, in verse 18, now in the morning, that's to say when the sun is just coming up, right at dawn, in the morning, when he was returning. Now, where is he returning? From where? Well, from verse 17, it says that they, were, they went to Bethany to spend the night. Uh, Bethany was just a town very close to Jerusalem, and many people, because of all the people that came for Passover, would sometimes go to little towns surrounding Jerusalem to be able to spend the night. Uh, kind of like, uh, not, uh, not the same because it's a lot further, but Houston and Tombaugh. They're, they're touching in a certain sense, but... Uh, a lot closer. Uh, don't think of Jerusalem as a huge city. Think small town, right? Uh, so they're returning. They're returning to the city. So if you can think about uh, Jerusalem, you can think about uh, there's Jerusalem. You're looking right at Jerusalem. Uh, to the east is the Jordan River. Uh, directly to the uh, southeast, there is um, the Mount of Olives kind of right there. And then if you kind of go around the Mount of Olives, kind of circle down, you'll get to Bethany. Uh, there they spent the night, and now they're on their way back going up to Jerusalem. And as they're going back to Jerusalem, all of a sudden he becomes hungry. Now, there's a lot in, that, in those three words, he became hungry. Now, I mean, there's a lot. What does it mean that God becomes hungry? What, what does that mean that all of a sudden he starts feeling hunger pains? This is the God who created everything in the world, and he is feeling the necessity of something. What, what does that mean? Uh, but that's not the point that Matthew is bringing out here. He's using the fact that he's hungry to get to a certain point. So while, while that is very curious, and we could play around with this idea of uh, Jesus being hungry, it it's only serves the purpose to point to verse 19, where it says, seeing a lone fig tree on the road. Now, he's, he's hungry, and so now he's going to approach this, this fig tree. When we think about a fig tree, we probably put no spiritual, theological significance on a fig tree at all. But for uh, Israel, it had a lot of meaning. Uh, for example, uh, fig trees, uh, you see that in Numbers 13, 23, you remember Moses sent out uh, spies to go look at the land. They're there at Kadesh Barnea. Uh, they're in Kadesh Barnea, and they send out the spies. The spies come back, and they've got this huge thing of grapes. And they got pomegranates, and they got figs. They got figs. It, it shows the bounty of God's provision, His blessing. They've got, they've got figs there. 
And, and even though they saw God's provision, it was there at Cadius Bernier that they did not want to take that step of faith. They, they saw that God had provided land of plenty, but rather than taking a step forward, they took a step backwards. We also see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 8, when God is promising a land, he tells them that it has all this different produce there. And among the produce that he is going to bless them with is figs. There are fig trees there in Israel. Uh, 1 Kings 4.25. There Solomon is talking about, uh, it's talking about uh, King Solomon's reign. And he says, everyone is living safely and everyone has their vine and fig tree. So it's a time of prosperity. It represents prosperity, blessing, and just uh, having plenty. It's a good time. It's used in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 13, where it, just as the fig tree ripens and it gives this aroma, so my beloved, and it goes into all the stuff. You'll have to read it on your own. We're not going to look at it here. Uh, but Jeremiah, chapter 8, um, God uses figs to talk about judging Israel. And then Jeremiah 24, he uses the figs to compare that good figs uh, will, will receive God's blessing, whereas there's some other figs, they're going to receive God's judgment. So this fig tree is not just a fig tree. It has a lot of theological, a lot of spiritual significance to it as they're looking at it. Uh, the fig tree, let me just be very clear here. This, this might seem rather obvious to you, but let's just put it out there. Uh, fig trees produce fruit. Told you, it's pretty basic, but it's true. They produce fruit. It's the natural thing that it does. Like, people don't have to go up to it and hang fruit on it, you know? No, it, it naturally takes sunlight and rain, and it produces fruit. That's the natural thing that it does. I know that's very elementary, but we have to be very clear that fig trees produce figs. But here they are, they're coming up to this fig tree, and it's Passover. In Israel, the fig season is around late April through August. So they're before this time. And uh, they, they come up to it, and there is, as it says, uh, verse 19, seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Now, something interesting about the fig tree is that before it produces leaves, it starts pr to produce these like little uh, covered flower things that are edible, uh, but uh, it, from there it will produce the fruit. So it should have at least had those flowers that would then bud into fruit, but it doesn't even have that. It just has a bunch of leaves. People would, might argue and say, well, Jesus is coming at the wrong season, but the fact is that it has leaves, but no, no fruit, no buds, nothing. It points to something very wrong happening in this tree. Something's really messed up with this tree because it has a bunch of leaves, but it has no fruit, none. And what does he do? Well, he, he, does, he, he puts judgment on this tree. Uh, he says to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Can you imagine that? Imagine the fig tree with its leaves and everything just weather down. That would be an amazing thing to see. But just like that, he pronounces judgment on the fig tree. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to look at about this. The first is that the tree was fruitless. You're like, yes, I, we got that. It was fruitless. 
But there's something interesting about this story in that Jesus is using this event figuratively to teach a spiritual lesson. See, uh, if you look at the other gospel narratives, they'll talk about what Jesus did in Bethany. But Matthew decides to ignore all the things that happened in Bethany because he is putting the story of Jesus cleaning out the temple right against uh, Jesus judging this tree. Because he doesn't want you to miss the point that Jesus is king. He is sovereign. And here is this tree, and it's, it's teaching the spiritual truth about it. Now, as we look at it, you, from a distance, you see the tree, and it looks like a very wonderful tree. It's got leaves. Oh, it's so nice. But you get up close to it, and there is just no fruit. I'm sure that those who came to the temple uh, probably thought Israel was well in order. The priests, they, they had their garb on. They were all dressed up, ready for Passover. They were, had their knives just all sharpened, ready to be sacrificing animals. You would see the animals being come, and they're brought over here to the priest, and the priest is slaughtering them, and sacrifices are being made. You can smell the, the, the burnt offerings unto the Lord. And from a distance, you would say, wow, Israel is serving the Lord. Everything's just hunky-dory there. Everything's great. But it's not. Something terrible is going on there in Israel. Because here comes Christ, and they don't recognize him. They, they don't get who he is. They don't understand who he is at all. So it looks on the outside that everything's good. Now, when we, this idea of having fruit, of bearing fruit, is not something new. It's not something new in the Bible. Amos 6.12 talks about Israel, how they were supposed to have fruits of righteousness, but instead they ended up having wormwood, something very, very bitter. Israel was supposed to obey God. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 6. It says, hear, O Israel. That hear is not a listen like we listen to the radio, but hear as in pay attention. Put it into practice. Obey it. Do it. That was their responsibility, but they didn't do it. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, we see in uh, Matthew 3, 8 through 10, John the Baptist, he was preaching, and he was telling the people that they were uh, supposed to have uh, fruits of repentance, but they didn't have any. In other words, they felt sorry, they cried and did everything else, but they went out and kept on living how they were living. There was no repentance at all. They, they had no fruit in their life. Matthew 7, 16 through 20, it says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus has already been talking about this aspect of fruit, of producing fruit in your life. Matthew 12, 33, again, he repeats this concept of the tree is known by its fruit. And then Matthew 13, 8, you remember there's the parable of the sower, and the sower is going around, and he's throwing the seed, and the seed is falling on different types of soil. But when it falls on good soil, what does it do? It comes up and just becomes really leafy? No. Leafiness is not beneficial. It becomes fruitful. For a person who has a vineyard, um, having a bunch of leaves is not beneficial. They want to have a bunch of grapes. 
right? If you're going to have a vineyard, you've got to have a bunch of grapes. You don't make money off the leaves. <laughs> the leaves don't do anything for you. They don't bring any extra money. Even if you have more leaves than last year, that doesn't, isn't beneficial. Um, it's the fruit that's important. Now, as we look at this, the, true, the, the tree was fruitless. And not only was the tree fruitless, but Jesus comes and inspects the, the, the tree for fruit. He comes and inspects. Now, who determined when Jesus came to inspect that tree? Who, who determined when that, that tree was going to be inspected by Jesus? Did, did the tree decide? The tree said, well, you know, I'd really like to be inspected around Passover. I'd love it. If you could make an appointment and, and just kind of, kind of stop by. Did the tree determine when it's going to get inspected? No. Christ is sovereign. He decides when he's going to inspect. He doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't say, uh, look, at this time I want to come by. You make sure you got fruit because I'm going to stop by. No. He decides when he's going to stop by. Was it a convenient time for the fig tree? <laughs> it was not a convenient time because the end result was judgment. Many people live their life because, again, we're looking at this because it's, giving, uh, it's an event that's being used figuratively. It's talking about a spiritual reality. Many individuals want to live they want to live like, I'm going to live for myself right now, and then when I'm old and I can't do anything, I'm going to give those years to the Lord. You're not guaranteed that. You're not guaranteed that he's not going to come and demand fruit and see what you have. That's what he does. And the tree has nothing, and so he casts judgment on it. Jesus determines when he's going to inspect. Now, when we're talking about fruit... Our minds might, because uh, we've got to think categorically, what is he talking about fruit, producing fruit in your life? You might want to, you might have gone, been tempted to go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe that's where your mind went. And if you did that, you would be uh, making a uh, canonical interpretation of the text. And I would suggest that before you jump to making a canonical interpretation, that you first interpret it contextually in Matthew. Contextually, Matthew uh, has been presenting Jesus as the king. And uh, contextually, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have been rejecting Christ's sovereignty. They're like, no, we got our own plan. It would be fine if Jesus wanted to come behind them and participate in what they're doing, but that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to establish his own kingdom, and they must submit to him. They, they don't like that. What does repentance look like in Matthew? It's a submission of the will to the Father, to God, to Christ. But they're not interested in doing that. That's what he's been asking, not asking, telling, preaching over and over again. But they haven't been doing. Now, when we look at this, we also see that Jesus judged the fruitless tree. He judges it. It had no fruit. He decided when he was going to come. He judged it. And when we look at this spiritually, we can kind of go to two different extremes. One extreme is to live in constant fear. I mean constant fear. You're always second-guessing what you're doing. Did I play the bass for God's glory or did I play it just for my... Uh, did I play the organ for God's glory or was I kind of showing off a little bit? Did I give the Lord's Supper elements out in a way that honored the Lord or was that just me showing off of how good I could pass that plate? You know, we start second-guessing everything. 
And you live in a constant fear, always second-guessing everything you do. And it really helps to consider that um, the people who he's talking to are the disciples. Uh, Peter is going to really flog the dog. So he's not talking about a perfection here. Uh, another way that we can sometimes act about this is that uh, we just don't care. Like, ah, let them judge. I don't care. And that's, that's not the attitude that you ha should have either. Uh, that, that shouldn't be the attitude. Uh, when Christ died for you on the cross, uh, before Christ died for you on the cross, how many uh, sins did, did God know that you would commit? Do you know about half of them? Don't say half. Do you know three quarters? Don't say three quarters either. How many do you know? All. Yes, wonderful answer. He knew all of your sins. Before Christ died for you, he knew all sins. Christ dies for you on the cross. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. You realize your need for a Savior. He already knew everything you would do up to the point of salvation and until he calls you home. How should you live with grace that great? Should you live selfishly? Really? You receive that type of grace? You want to give thanks to the Lord and live for Him. I mean, it's incredible. Not just all my sins up to the point of salvation, but all my sins were covered at the cross. How do you live? You live in appreciation to the Lord for who did this. So don't live in constant fear. Live under the grace of God. Don't live like you don't care. Live in appreciation. Avoid the two extremes. Now, the second point, which is uh, verses 20 through 22. The first point was faithlessness leads to death. Verses 20 through 22 is faith leads to great works. Faith leads to great works. We see in verse 20, it says, Seeing this, the disciples were amazed. This, this <laughs> has bothered me all week. I've looked at it. I've read commentaries and everything else. I'm trying to figure this out. Why in the world are they amazed at a fig tree getting weathered up? I mean, they've been seeing Jesus walk on water, multiply bread, heal blind people, people that can't walk. He's healed them. And all of a sudden, he, healed, uh, he, he weathers a tree, and they're like, oh, how'd you do that? Like, really? I mean, <laughs> at this point, you would just think that they're like, yeah, he weathered a tree, you know? I mean, that's just the thing to do. That's what he did. But they're, they're amazed. Like, how'd you do that? That's what they're going to ask him. How did the fig tree weather all at once? Because he's the son of David. He's the anointed one. He's, he's God's incarnate son. That's how. And he pronounced the judgment. He's sovereign over creation. And that includes the fig tree. Now, verse 21, Jesus is going to answer them and says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Now, this kind of seems like a formula. Doesn't that seem like a formula to you? It almost seems like a formula. It almost seems like a formula that you can kind of get God and just put him in your pocket, and you can do whatever you want to do. Doesn't that seem like a formula to you? What does he, what does he say? 
I mean, look at this. Casting a mountain into the sea. Can you imagine that? That's power. Let's say we don't want to cast mountains into the sea. Maybe we want other things. I mean, this kind of seems like a formula. But before we get all excited and start high-fiving each other about all the mountains we're going to move, let's look at it a little bit closer. It says the first thing that they have to do, it says, truly I say to you, if you have faith. And you're like, okay, check one. Have faith. Uh, next thing, not doubt. Do not doubt. So I got to have faith, and I, and I can't doubt. All right, put those two things in order. Hot dog, we're about to move a mountain. You guys ready for this? Third thing is, uh, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree. When you say you will not only do, it implies that you will do that, doesn't it? Sure it does. And most of us probably came here today saying, I'm not planning on judging any fig trees to see if they have fruit. Furthermore, I'm not planning on judging any people to see if they really have fruit in their life. Well, but that's what he says. Have faith. Don't doubt. And you're also supposed to be looking at people's fruit. See what they're producing in their life. See if they're going from non-fruit to be producing fruit. Like, well, I thought this was about mountain moving. Well, we're about to get there. So you're involved in judging people. And then there comes the third part, the fourth part, which we're so excited about, moving the mountain. And what does he say? He says, but uh, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. So have faith, don't doubt, uh, you know, analyze the fig tree, look at people, see if they're producing fruit, and then uh, move the mountain. But there's a little problem here, and it's a, a demonstrative pronoun. That demonstrative pronoun is, uh, you'll find it there in verse tw uh, 21, it's, it's this mountain. It's not mountain in general. It's not all the mountains of the world. But he's talking about a particular mountain. If you have faith, if you don't doubt, you'll not only do the thing with the fig tree, but this mountain. Now, which mountain is he talking about? I've got to move quickly here. They're coming from Bethany. To get from Bethany to Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem's up on a mountain. And he could be talking about moving Jerusalem all into the sea as judgment. Judgment against the, against the city. A city that is supposed to be worshiping Christ, but they're not. It could be mentioning that, or it could be as they come from Bethany, they've got to circle around. They've got to move around because go up Mount of Olives and back down. That's too much work. So they, the, the, the road kind of goes around it, and then they get to Jerusalem. So the, this mountain could be what stands in between where he's at with the fig tree and Jerusalem where he's where the Father has him going. In other words, the mountain is, is this hindrance between where he's at and where God wants him to be. That's the mountain. Many Christians will leave just mediocre lives because they won't have the faith to ask God to move the hindrances out of their life to become more like Christ and less like themselves. They will be satisfied with earthly comforts, earthly promotions. They'll be satisfied with earthly careers and never ask God to take those things 
that are hindering them for them to become more like Christ and less like themselves. Because that's where God is taking each of us, every single one of us. What's the will of God for your life? To become more like Christ and less like ourselves. But many Christians will decide not to pray that way, not to seek that. You say, oh, but you're ignoring verse, you're ignoring verse 22. Look at verse 22. I mean, this is, this, is, this is definitely the verse where it says you put God in your pocket and you, whenever you want, you just pull him out and, and you get whatever you want. Look at what it says. It says, in all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. That's, that seems like a, another sequence of events, right? Pray, believe, and then what? You receive. Isn't that great? Don't you want to receive? All, what does all mean? You say, well, all means all. And that's true, but sometimes context uh, narrows, limits all. For example, say I've got uh, three cookies. And I put the three cookies here, and I say, Chris, you can have all the cookies. Now, um, am I saying he can have all the cookies of the whole wide world? Well, that would be ridiculous. Uh, he'd go try to steal a cookie from a kid, and he's going to get in trouble. He can have all three of these cookies, right? It, the all is narrowed by the context. What is the context here? The context is that there was a tree that had leaves, but no fruit. There was a major malfunction in that tree in that it appeared alive, but it was dead, fruitless. What should you be praying for? God, give me fruit because I don't want to end up like that tree withered away in judgment. God, please give me fruit in my life to glorify you. But many of us, we won't do that prayer. That all we'll say is all is, is houses, is careers, trips. That all will be whatever our heart desires. But it usually will not be, give me fruit in my life for your honor and your glory. Let I may I produce more and more fruit for you. Let me, let me submit to your will. Why? Because he'll have to take you out of your comfort. He'll have to break you. He'll have to put you in situations that you're not comfortable with. You'll be speaking languages that you don't know and be stuttering. He'll use whatever it takes to produce fruit in your life. And many of us say, no, I prefer not to have that. I just want all everything else. Faith in God produces fruit in your life. There's no way around it. There's not, you don't add works to salvation, but a person saved produces fruit. There's no way around it. Just like a, a baby being born. It'd be ridiculous if a, if a mother went around 10 years holding this little creature. It, it never breathes. It doesn't grow. It's all shriveled up and nasty looking. What would we do? We'd get away from that lady. And she's like, my baby's alive. No, it's not. It's dead. And yet so many times people go around like that with their Christian life. No fruit. No fruit at all. Faith in God produces fruit and great works for God's purpose. Can you imagine a church?
church submitted to the will of God, begging for fruit in our lives. Sometimes we're willing to pay extra just to have the heavy-duty looking stuff. Because we're going to have somebody come and look at our stove and we don't want to be judged. What effort will you put in to see fruit in your own life? Not fake stuff, real fruit, spirit fruit. For some of you, that might mean that uh, you have to accept Christ as your Savior. You've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You've never put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You might know some stories, but you're thinking you're good enough, or you come from a good family, or I don't know, you're American, as if that has something to do with it. It's putting faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross that saved you. For other of us, we are probably saved, and, but we have no fruit. We focused ourselves so much on ourselves and not on Christ. And that is something that we need to repent of. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to move into the Lord's Supper. Would you please bow with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I pray now as we examine our hearts before taking the Lord's Supper, I pray that you expose things that we need to repent of. Father, we might not have produced any fruit because we are so focused on ourselves. And I pray that we will beg you in faith, not doubting, that you will use whatever means possible that we will produce fruit for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. At this time, I'd like to ask uh, Dave and 